Okay, hello and welcome to episode 27 of Dano Says So. Tonight's guest is my first return solo guest. He was the second interview I ever did for the show. Um, it seems redundant to try and go through his library of musical achievements, but starting you know, in the early 80s with, with Articles of Faith, hitting my radar, clear through to recent outings like Dead Endings, he represents one of my favorite screams. What I love about having Vic on the show is that his academic understanding of history and politics far, far exceeds mine and that of most of my guests. So I can just openly and unashamedly pick his brain regarding politics. So Vic Bondi, thank you for coming back and thank you for doing this. Hey, Dan, it's great to see you again. Thanks again for having me. Appreciate Absolutely. it. Um, we had talked uh, more than once in recent months about doing a post-inaugural together. Um, well, let's go. Let's go. What am I going to sing? What am I going to sing about now, man? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to rob you of all of your material. Um, to me, though, you can't talk about the inaugural without talking about January 6th. Um, did that exceed your fears or anxieties or suspicions? Well, I mean, you know, it's like everything, everything in the, the Trump era. It's very hard to find the even place where reality resides, right? Right. So, you know, I, that day I was working, I'm working at home, uh, but I had the radio on in the morning and they put Trump on on the radio and I just heard him spew his bullshit. I'm like, I'm so fucking tired of this guy. I just turned it off, Mm -hmm. went to work, did my work. And then, I don't know, about two o'clock or so, 2.30, somebody at work was texting me and saying, holy shit, I can't concentrate. I can't believe this shit. I'm like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And then I, I, I see it and I'm, it fits perfect, right? Like you see the, inc- I heard the incitement. I mean, it was him just as belligerent asshole, but then these guys are storming the Capitol. And so one, it, it seems Im- improbable and impossible because where's the security on one of the most secure buildings on the planet? When, when I was a boy, I lived in the D.C. area. My dad was stationed uh, in D.C. And so when I was a boy, you could actually walk up the stairs of the Capitol and walk right in. Really? Yeah. And I'm trying to remember whether you could actually just walk up and watch the senator of the House in session. I think you had to have an appointment or you had to go had to stand in line to get in. But you this could, is for the gallery upstairs? Yeah, you could still okay. go up in the gallery and actually watch the proceedings. Wow. There was no security. There was, there was not, I mean, there were cops, but it was really the people's house and you could just walk right in. You couldn't do that at the White House. You had to make an appointment at the White House. But again, like it wasn't a big deal. You're going to make an appointment to the White House and then you and 20 other people would be in a, in a group and you'd go through the White House and it was great. Uh, and at the Capitol, you could just walk in. So, so, but it's changed so much then, you know, and then my dad was, after I left home, my dad lived in DC area for a long time. My dad and mom lived in DC area for a long time. So I'd go back to visit and you could gradually see the change after 9-11, they put this massive security apparatus into that building, this mm-hmm. underground, there's this underground intake unit that shuffles you in. And then once you're in that underground intake unit, I think you can only go on a prescribed route through the 
the capital and it's very controlled. You know, okay. it's not, it wasn't, like I said, when I was a boy, you just wander through. I can remember wandering through the statuary hall and looking at all the statues of the guys. So, so since it's so secure now, it was just so improbable that these yahoos would be able to get into that building like that. And then you, then you would see the pictures of somebody shooting into the House of Representatives, right? Onto the, they're shooting bullets through the door. And you're just like, and then you would read about guys who are going there, going for blood. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so again, just like everything with Trump, your, your, your mindset is challenged by what's real here. Was right. this just, was this just a bunch of dumbasses that somehow got into the Capitol? You know, there, there were some news reports that were saying, well, after the, after the way that the, uh, protests this summer went down. They didn't want to have as forceful a presence for this stuff. And so they were trying to soft pedal it. Maybe that meant that they were under equipped for what happened. Uh, so it was, it, it makes sense that they'd be able to go in, but then you would go immediately to the other place, which is there's a conspiracy of people that were basically trying to let these guys in so they could do damage to Congress. That there seems was, apparent. Yeah. There was an attack on the United States Congress by Trump and his minions. And I'm still kind of stuck there. I, I don't like conspiracy theories. I don't, because they, they always try and tie reality up too neatly. Mm-hmm. They don't actually tell you any, they're, 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 they're the poor man's pattern making, right? They require no critical thinking. But this is one where you really do wonder whether at least there was some degree of conspiracy involved in getting these guys into Congress. There were some guys in there that weren't just knuckleheads wearing bullhorns, but were actually out to, you know, kidnap Pelosi and shoot her in the head. Mm-hmm. And this, this, this was in some, in his own shambolic, completely incompetent way. This was Trump's best effort at making a coup against right. the United States. Right. Because that fits a pattern that is real with him, which is utter incompetence, utter stupidity, and these kind of gestures towards things that he wants to happen and never putting in the effort to make it actually happen. So, I mean, the military was never going to back it anyway. They weren't going to back a coup. So this was maybe his, this is, this was the best the son of a bitch could come up with, um, and I still don't know how to how to actually parse it. I, I I really think that Biden and the federal government. I think the federal government needs to denazify. There are people in the government who are fucking Nazis. A lot of these guys that Trump has left around in the last two months, he's been very busy. Um, there's this process called burrowing, where you take political appointees, you convert them into civil service appointees. And once they're civil support service appointees, they have the protections of the civil service, and it's very hard to dismiss them from their posts. Is that the but, kind of situation you had with, was it the NSA lawyer that was? Yeah, Michael Ellis. Okay. Michael Ellis, right? So Michael Ellis is a great example of that. Totally not competent. He had, he had to take a qualifying exam with three other civil service people for that job as counsel. He did not get the highest score, and yet he's in that office. Okay. And now that he's in it, he has civil service protections. So the only thing that uh, that a Biden can do is he can put him on administrative leave, which he did. 
and maybe he can send him to Alaska or Guam or something where he can do very little damage. But this is this this has happened all over government. It's really happened in the Department of Defense. So Trump and Putin and McConnell have burrowed into the executive branch with a bunch of uh, careerists whose interests are not aligned with the country and potentially are treasonous. And it's going to impede Biden's ability to effectively act. So what do we know on day two of his presidency? There was no vaccine program. There's no stockpiles of vaccine, right? right. And there was no plan. And, and that comes as a surprise to absolutely no one who's lived here in the world. And like you and I were just talking about, and it's trying to get their mom or their grandfather, you know, or their, or their great uncle a vaccine because Nobody knows in Washington state where I'm at, absolutely nobody knows how to do it. The, right. the, they don't know where the vaccines are. There is vaccines that are getting to the healthcare professionals, thankfully. But in terms of getting to my mom, um, I don't know. My, my father-in-law who lives in Michigan, it looks like he's going to get the shot today. But, you know, there's, there was no plan. There never was a plan. Well, that because- seems that, 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 that's in character with, you know, we waited four years worth of two weeks for the health care plan. You know. Yeah, there was no health care plan. There's no infrastructure plan. Mexico wasn't going to pay for the goddamn wall. Yeah. The, the Trump administration was government by spectacle. It was government by announcement. That's, so really, well, that's really well phrased. I've been looking for the way to say that for quite some time. What, what, they, what he would do is he would go on Twitter and he would say something incendiary and outrageous. Everybody's mind would be blown and upset. And at the same time, in government itself, in the executive branch, at the level of policy, somebody was doing something heinous and nefarious whose long-term consequences wouldn't be immediately observable. This year, the 2017 tax cut that Congress passed for rich, rich millionaires, is it, it blew a hole in the deficit, right? It skyrocketed the deficit, but it had a sunset clause in it that will hit this year, 2021, and now middle-class taxpayers are going to have to pay down the debt that was created by that tax program, right? And again, so it's one of these things where the day that they passed the tax plan, I'm sure Trump said something about, you know, locking up Muslims or putting children behind bars and everybody was just so furious about it. They weren't focused on the fact that he's balanced, he's, he's given this huge tax reward for wealthy people. Two years or three years later, he's planning to take it all back through middle-class taxpayers and through poor taxpayers, right? So this is what they, they did at all sorts of levels of government. They, they were doing the same thing with, you know, you, you've seen the same thing in terms of the environmental actions of the Trump administration mm-hmm. at the level of executive order and at the level of policy. He has guys in positions where they're managing the data in the EPA, and what they're doing with the data is they're, they're, they're burning it. So you don't know what the actual particulate rate is in the air, or you can't actually tell about the pollution in the rivers. So the idea is blind the public so they don't know what's really going on, create these spectacles and these outrages that you know, incense everyone, but at the same time that they're incensed, you're not seeing what they're doing down at the institutional level to absolutely and resolutely 
fuck the country for the future. I'd heard many times people people proffering the notion that his the diversion was a prime was a huge tactic. That if he's you know somehow poisoning the punch over here, then he's waving his hand over here. Yeah. You know, in other words, bright and shiny objects. Now it's questioned whether he was sophisticated enough or bright enough for that. But I guess that's not really that heady an accomplishment. And well, it seems it seems obvious when you you really think that a lot of the things that got through would they would require a certain amount of sleight of hand of the outrage that accompanied them would have been huge. But he was the three card Monty guy for the Republican Party, right? So right. okay, he's he's the one doing that, and at the same time, they're the ones that are actually going in. And you know, I'm 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 astonished the Keystone XL pipeline has been blown up. I, I would, I'm I'm just we'll see whether this lands or not. But uh-huh. you know, the Republican Party used him as their stalking horse. They got their tax cuts. They got deregulation, right? They got a massive increase in the military. So at the same time that Putin has been able to effectively wage war in the United States using disinformation, misinformation and outrage. The United States are, are building these F-35 fighters that don't even fly for you know $365 million a pop. That's going into someone's pocket. Or they're cutting deals with the Saudis to buy a bunch of arms from Raytheon so that they can blow up the Houthis and the Yemenis. And this stuff is all taking place behind the scenes, right? You don't, you don't really see it. Mm-hmm. But it's there. So they're making money. That's what the whole point of the Republican Party is, making money. They've made their money. They had Trump to piss everybody off. The entire left was so outraged by the shit that he was doing that they weren't focused on what, what, he, what he was actually doing for the Republicans. And now Biden's going to have to pick it up and try and manage it. And God knows whether he's going to be able to do it. The last time you and I talked, I, I told you that even if Biden won the presidency, the next four years are going to be hellacious. Yeah, you did. You said exactly like, that. Like economically, after everybody takes their COVID savings, which they're, they've everybody's been saving, I think there's something like $500 billion in personal consumer saving that's in, mm. in the bank right now. Once the vaccine has actually made its way through society and people feel like they can go to movies and they go to concerts, they can go to basketball games. Once everybody's doing that, there's going to be this great massive explosion in the economy because all these consumers are going to go out there and spend their money. People are dying to spend their money. I want to go on a trip. Everybody wants to go on a trip. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a big explosion in the economy, May, June, July, right? What's, what's going to be interesting is a year from now where we're at. Because after that happens, all the damage that Trump has done to the economy is going to make itself manifest. And the debt that's owed right now because because Republicans hawked the country to jack up stock prices over the last four years, all of that's going to come due. I don't know if Biden has the capacity or even the will to oppose it. It's just like the austerity measures that happened in Europe after the 2008 um, collapse, right? It's going to be the same order of magnitude conversation where McConnell and the GOP comes in and they say, we need, we, we need to pay back this debt. The debt's too high, trillions of dollars. We've got to pay it back. We need austerity. We need to cut government. We need to cut the only place to cut. You know, if you look at the federal budget, healthcare and social security are something on the order of uh, 55, 60% of expenditures. So the only place to cut is there. They're going to, they're going to, and 
they'll privatize Social Security or they'll make a run at privatizing it. They've been trying to do it for a long time. This it'll be really interesting to see what happens with healthcare because the best way to keep the economy healthy would be to cut healthcare costs. And the best best way to do that would be to institute greater regulation of that market and probably to introduce single payer as an option against the private market. So it has that competitive space. That's what Franklin Roosevelt did with the TVA. When Roosevelt set up the TVA, nobody in government knew how much it costs to make electricity. But what the TVA was really set up to the Tennessee Valley Authority was set up to do was to get government into the utilities business so it could figure out how much actually did it cost to make this stuff and how much that they, the public was being charged by the private utilities was just graft and greed. Okay. And once they were, did that, they were able to effectively regulate those markets and effectively regulate the economy, bring those costs down. The same thing has to be done in healthcare. And until you do, until you do it, you're not going to be able to control these costs. Well, the cuts you're talking about, they, and maybe this is an overly, over, overly simple understanding, but they simply won't have the legislative muscle on the right side of the aisle to do that until after, until after the midterms, correct? Well, we'll have to see where the midterms go, right? Right. Like, um, I mean, my, my feeling is that Biden and Harris should be right now, actually, everything they should do should be directed towards winning the, the 2021 or 2022 midterms. Right. Because if they don't do that, they're not going to have enough bandwidth and enough political capacity uh, to enact any program that we actually need for the next 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. What, what, because Trump has been so destructive of American institutions and norms, we face this perilous decline right in front of us mm-hmm. unless very dramatic steps are taken now to arrest it. But Biden doesn't have the political cover to do that. He also doesn't have the political instinct to do that. I mean, he's not, this guy is a, He's, he's, he, he is the bureaucrat. He is mm-hmm. the classic politician. He's been in politics his whole life. And I'm willing to give him some latitude. Like, I want to see what the man does. I thought his mm-hmm. speech was great yesterday. Um, I, and, and when he says he wants to bring back the soul of America, Jesus, can we just get one man in there that's just a little less racist than Trump? Because that guy was an, an appalling fucking white supremacist, right? Right. You know, so I'm willing to give Biden a lot of latitude, but he doesn't have a lot of political instruments to work with. Mm-hmm. This, this margin in Congress is insignificant. So the best thing he can do is find some radical centrists and and work with them to fix some of this stuff, like... The national security stuff has got to be dealt with. You have to denazify the government. You have to get Putin's guys out because Putin is in there. You have to get um, you have to get this this I you have to get the 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 democracy working one person one vote again. This mm-hmm. gerrymandering crap, the voter suppression that the Republicans have done. You know it was successful. I don't I don't care what anybody says. Everybody on this podcast had the experience at Christmas time of getting your Christmas card two weeks after Christmas or three weeks after Christmas, right? Because the post office is screwed and it was screwed by DeJoy. And if, if you're getting your if you're getting your Christmas cards two weeks late, what happened to all those last minute ballots that went through the mail? Right? Like 
you, you can't tell me this didn't work. The election was fine. If the ballots got to the electors or to the, the elector officials who were counting them, they were counted. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them didn't make it. Like right. you see that in southern, southern Florida. You see that in Texas. Right before the election, all this discussion about how Texas was going to flip blue, you know, Florida was going to flip blue. And then mysteriously and suddenly the voting margins and the tallies from the Hispanic communities in Texas and in, and the Latino community in, 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 in Florida, they just, they don't arrive. They don't materialize for the Democrats. So it must mm-hmm. be Biden's fault for not doing the right level of outreach with Latino voters. Or, or there's a lot of ballots that didn't make it. Right. Right. And, that, and I, 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 I suspect as much. Um, and, and DeJoy, DeJoy, the postmaster general, is one of these burrowing guys. This is a cabinet level position, but Biden can't fire him. Really? Yeah. I don't know that I grasp that. It's, it's, uh, it is, it is a horrifying reality, but it's nice to finally hear the details and what you meant about a hellacious four years. Um, you talk about giving Biden the benefit of the doubt and at least giving him a chance and seeing what can happen. And uh, there are certainly challenges to be identified that I'd like to ask you about. But you also talked about his speech. What did you think about the tone of the inauguration itself? I, I thought as a production, as Showcraft, thought it was executed flawlessly. I also thought its talking points were extremely well chosen. I thought, I thought at least as an entity, as a single performance, I thought it was the right medicine. Well, what, what was the single thing that really struck you? Well, I mean, they, they go with unity, unity, unity. But the thing that I found impressive was that the words white supremacy were in, the, were in his inaugural address. Yeah. You know? Um, I mean, I thought, I mean, look, Biden's bona fides on race are pretty good, right? This guy worked with the first African-American president. And he worked side by side with him. He worked effectively with him. Right. And um, I, I, there was a line in the speech that I really liked, which is he says, we cannot rely on the example of our power, but on the power of our example. Right. And I liked that because that's what my dad used to say. So my father was a 30 year Navy commander he ran a bunch of bases. He was in the Naval Security Group. So um, he did signals intelligence. He, he got a medal from the government for helping find Russian submarines in the 1960s. And then later on, he became kind of a, you know, a cap. He, he, he ran NAS Corey Field, which is the electronic uh, training program for the U.S. Navy. It's down in Pensacola, Florida. Okay. But my dad... My dad used to, and, and you know, he had 20,000 men under his command. So he knew something about, about leadership. And my dad used to say, uh, never, he said, I would, I'd ask him, well, what are your principles of leadership? And he would say, um, never ask someone to do something that you wouldn't be willing to do yourself. And provide an example and not a declaration, right? So dad, dad was very clear on, Words don't matter. Acts do. What you do counts, and you have to provide the example. This is this is one of the things that really bothers me about the left, about my my the people I ally with on the left, is we have a tendency to focus on words and not acts. And 
You know, this is why Trump was very successful as a malignant force in American life. The words were incendiary. Mm-hmm. The acts were too, but they were always subsumed to those words. The minute he's off a the minute he's off Twitter, the whole tone of the country goes down, right? Yeah, remarkably so. Yeah. Uh, because because he doesn't have that platform to just talk shit. Right? Right. Uh, but for for my dad, I think my father, he's he's he died three years ago. My dad. I think he would have been very, very happy with Biden. He hated Trump. He absolutely despised him. I think a lot of military men hated mm-hmm. Trump. And they hated him because Trump was a coward. Trump was a bully. Trump had no integrity. You know, there's, and 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 we're in this weird space where uh, the military seemed to be a very progressive force at the end of the, the Trump administration when he was trying to get it to become his personal agent and tool his police force for his oppression in DC and then later on a coup against the government. And it was the kind of, the military was this kind of progressive institution. It's not a progressive institution, right? I mean, it wages war right now. It's waging war in Yemen. It's helping the Saudis kill Yemenis. So it's not, it's not a progressive force, but it was astonishing to me how that institution at least embrace some of the better angels of our nature and some of the better traditions in American history. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I saw that with a lot of military vet- veterans, my father, my father-in-law was in the army. All my uncles were Marines. You know, they, they all hated Trump and because he did not represent America at all. He did not represent the best in the country. He did not represent the best in character and morality. And, and that stuff counts for something. It counts for something in the military. It counts for something in education. It counts for something in hardcore. It counts. And that guy had none of it. Right. Yeah, no arguments here. Um, was it 17 executive orders on Biden's first day in office? Yeah. And I know there was another slew of them today. Yeah. My I understanding, uh, you know, I keep up with the facts as best I can. I like to think myself somewhat politically minded, but I don't know if I understand the full effectiveness of effective of executive orders. I mean, is some of this, is some of this simply posture? No, I mean, uh, I'm sure a lot of these, again, institutionally within a scope is constitutional scope as an executive. He has a lot of tools at his disposal. You could argue he shouldn't have, Right. Well, because I remember, I just remember when the Tea Party went berserk on Obama with the whole imperial presidency bit and felt that the use of the of executive orders was was way out of control. And it seems like in my lifetime, it's become a more and more common instrument. Yeah, definitely. Especially as Congress has become gridlocked and it's become, Congress has become dysfunctional because rich men want it to be dysfunctional. You know, if the government is paralyzed and incapable, it doesn't affect rich people in the pandemic, rich people have done well. I mean, there's Scott Galloway. I don't know if you know Scott Galloway. He's a professor at um, the Stern School in New York. He has a podcast called The Prof G Show, and he has another podcast with Kira Swisher called Pivot. He's a very smart guy, and he's he keeps saying rich people have never had it so good. The pandemic has been horrific. If you're a truck driver, if you work at a food processing factory, if you're a grocery clerk, this has been a nightmare. You can't get sick. You're exposed to sickness every day. If you get sick, you have to take time off work and you might lose your job. Mm-hmm. 
that's the experience for people there. Rich people have been jetting off to their house in, you know, the Rockies. They've been right. getting their yacht in the, in, the, in the Caribbean. They've been sitting out on their yacht. They take a phone conference. They drink a Mai Tai. Like they, their stocks have been going through the roof. Mm-hmm. They buy Tesla. They buy Bitcoin. They're doing great. Right. The COVID pandemic has never been so good for these guys. But for the rest of us, it's been a horror show. Right? It's been sure. a horror show. Let- so, 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 you know, rich people have no problem paralyzing the government, defunding the government, eliminating the government. They'll do great. They have all the resources in the world. The rest of us don't. We need the government. Mm-hmm. It's the expression of our joint purpose. It's also funded by us. Like it's the way in which we pool our resources so that all of us can do better. None of these, none of these things, healthcare or social security, you know, you can, you can save money for retirement. You can also save money for healthcare and pay for it yourself. But the truth of the matter is those costs are so extraordinary that what we've chosen to do instead is distribute them amongst all of us. Mm-hmm. And so all of us pool our resources for healthcare and for, for retirement. And then that makes healthcare and retirement better for all of us. Well, we need that government. We need right. it. These, these other guys, they don't fucking need it. Well, I'm suddenly, I'm sitting here thinking while you're talking, the gridlock almost seems, do you suspect that grid, the gridlock, congressional gridlock is by and large a permanent thing? Because I'm, I'm what's occurring to me while you're talking is that in order to stave off deregulation, the Dems need to remain an equal and opposite reaction. Not that they're the, you know, part and parcel of the faces of regulation, but like you talk about the necessary regulation in healthcare, right? In order to in order to control costs. Well, if we if we explore a broader ballot, more parties on the ballot, if we explore, you know things like the AOC and Bernie and uh, uh, of the progressives going more and more into their own space. If we look at anything that weakens what's referred to as the left, as the Dems, we take our fingers out of the dam, don't we? Well, I mean, AOC is one of the most astonishing politicians in America today. I love her. Mm-hmm. Um, Bernie, Bernie's great. I, vote, I voted for him twice. But uh, Bernie, Bernie's, Bernie's at the end of his career. And I, I mean that that meme that's going around with him in the gloves. I've never seen know, anything sprout so fast in all my life. Yeah. That's all about that's all about like old guys not giving a fuck. I mean I, that whole Bernie thing is like I don't I don't fucking care. I it's just like and, and and the only good thing about getting old, let me tell you, as an old guy, <laughs> the only good thing about getting old is you get to the point where you don't have to care. Like I don't care. I don't care about any of these fucking pop stars. I don't give a damn about them, right? Like, there's so much stuff you don't have to care about anymore. It's like, yeah, yeah, you can go ahead. You want to call me an old bastard? That's fine. I don't give a shit, right? Like, and that Bernie meme, that's exactly that. That's an old guy that has no, has no two fucks to give any longer. So it was pretty great. But Bernie is at the end of his career. AOC is at the beginning of hers. And she's pretty astonishing. She's, she's, she is. She's very sharp. Mm-hmm. Um, she thinks on her feet. We need more people like Katie Porter is like that too. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
the progressive and the, and the centrist wing of the Democratic Party have to work also with the centrist wing of the Republican Party to purge the government of Nazis. There's fascism in the country. There's a lot of fascism in the country. It's really mm-hmm. bad. This flag, this blue line flag that goes around, that's a Nazi flag. Mm-hmm. That's a Nazi flag. And there's a lot of this in the country today. It's people who worship force, strength. Um, it's, it's this almost perverse psychosexual embrace of, of, of force. Uh, you, you know, these guys, it's also a lot of fear. Two days into Biden's presidency and Fox News is all about the anarchists have taken over Portland. The anarchists have taken over Seattle. Well, dude, here I am. I'm in <laughs> Seattle. Right? right? I'm in Seattle. And anarchists didn't take over here yesterday. And if they did, I'd probably give them something to eat. Right. So it's, it's nonsense. So they, they feed fear. They have... All these guys riding around in their pickup trucks are the most fearful sons of bitches on the planet. They're scared. What, what the hell are they scared about? They're scared right. about everything. They're scared about everything. The Mexicans are going to take over. The gays are going to take over. You're going to take my guns. Women are going to take over. I've never seen so many fearful men in my life. Right. Agreed. I just wusses, wimps, scared little boys. Grow the fuck up. <laughs> You're getting no arguments from me. You, uh, you, uh, and you encapsulate it well. You know, you use the phrase psychosexual in there, right? Yeah. Well, I've heard more than once a lot of people sort of trace. You, you kept using force, and maybe that's more appropriate. I hear a lot of people blaming sort of the the flak jacket fantasy, the, the the cosplay conservatives, saying that it's it's a just an extremely visible manifestation of toxic masculinity. But I'll tell you, it's not yeah. it's not gender exclusive. I mean, the shooting casualty coming into the chambers was a woman. Yeah, yeah. And and so are these knuckleheaded women that are actually in Congress right now, and they're fascistic as hell, the one from Georgia and the one from Colorado, right? And right. and Yvette QAnon has has managed to penetrate yoga groups and convince these women, Jesus. you know, that this is this is this is you know this 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 blood libel myth. This goes mm-hmm. back to the protocols of the elders of Zion and the pogroms of the 19th century in Russia. This blood libel that was always Jewish that Jews were stealing children, they were drinking their blood. I mean, mm-hmm. this this nonsense. You know, one one thing in the with the benefit of history, um, a lot of this stuff actually is a deeply is a deep part of American character, and it goes it goes back hundreds of years, right? Like. Mm-hmm. We had the Know Nothing Party in the 1830s. We've had the anti-Masons. We've had the anti-Catholics. We've had the Millerites. In the 1840s, the Millerites were a group of evangelicals who believed that Christ was coming back to earth. And in upstate New York, they, they sold all their goods. They got rid of everything they had. They donned white cloths. And I forget, it was a day in October. They all stood on the hilltops in upper New York State and waited for Christ to come back. He didn't. And then what they said was, he did come back, but you didn't have the faith enough to see it. And that became the basis of the Seventh-day Adventist church. So, or not the Seventh-day Adventist, excuse me. Um, who's the guys? The guys who come to your house all the time. The Holy Witness? 
Jehovah's Witness. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, this this kind of willingness to break with reality and embrace some myth, it goes way back in American history, this paranoid fantasy stuff. Richard Hofstadter, the historian, wrote a great book called The Paranoid, the Paranoid Style in American History. And he talked about this. He, I mean, he, again, you can go back to, you know, the Know Nothings. The Know Nothings were a political movement in the 1830s that started with a murder in upstate New York that supposedly was done by uh, uh, Masons, right? Okay. And so Masons were another version of this blood libel where they were seizing children and women. Per, you know, they had blood rites that they did mm-hmm. at night. And oh, for fuck's sake, I mean. <laughs> This, this willingness to imagine, imagine these terrors um, when, when in fact there's terrors right in front of you. I mean, there's people are dying from fentanyl. People are not, people are going to be dying from starvation. I mean, they're dying of starvation in other places in the world. There's enough horror in reality that you don't need to invent it yeah. and append it to reality, you know, but yet, that's what all these knuckleheads in their trucks do. Uh, when I went across country a couple of years ago with my daughter, I drove across country with her and I was, I was in a lot of middle red states. We followed the Oregon Trail back to Seattle through Nebraska and Wyoming. Um, you know, I, I could not get over that blue line flag. And I kept thinking to myself, how many black people are in your community? How many, how many black people live in your community? You don't, you don't have any black people here. Mm-hmm. So what is it that you think black people are doing to the cops? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it's just like Fox news. Now one day into Biden's presidency, Fox news are telling white people in Wyoming that the mm-hmm. city that I live in has been taken over by Antifa. Yeah. I'm like, come fucking on. It's that's not what, true. That's one of the things that amazes me in what you would think would be an, in era of easily identifiable or easily verifiable facts just by virtue of technology and the speed at which information travels that things would be disproven but not only a major news network or a major news outlet but our commander-in-chief were comfortably and successfully able to weave false narratives daily and at will you know for an entire term I, I always had trouble wrapping my head around it because they were they were always things that, to my mind, were easily disproven. You have to you have to be a willing participant in denial to buy that my narrative. Brother, uh, my brother, my brother, this is the democratization of information, right? And so, you know, um, when I first started working for Microsoft, I worked for Encarta Encyclopedia. I don't know you might, you might you're old enough to remember it. Encarta was a, the first CD-ROM encyclopedia. Okay. So it was, you took all, it, when I was a boy, you had, you know, big encyclopedias. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Salesmen would sell you these books of encyclopedias. And Carter was the first one that put it on a disc and made it available to you on your computer. And that was my first job at Microsoft. I worked, I worked for those guys. Okay. Um, and we, we had a lot of discussion in those days about the democratization of information. Bill used to talk about it a lot. He said, the internet, he, he did this uh, memo to all of us in 95 called the internet tsunami. The internet didn't really exist. At least the graphical user interface that we have on the internet today doesn't, okay. didn't exist at that point. But Bill, Bill thought it was coming. Uh, that's why we end up building Internet Explorer and competing, competing, destroying Netscape, all these other stories. But um, 
one of the things that Bill used to talk about and we talked about a lot in those days was the democratization of information. And Encarta was an encyclopedia that was built around this idea of capturing all this knowledge on a disk. Okay. Well, really in 96, 97, knowing the internet was there, we said, you know, maybe we should put Encarta on the internet and let people just modify the articles however they want. We can update them constantly through the internet. And, and we called it, we called it Exploropedia. That was I was going to say, called. so this is baby Wikipedia, but yeah. Yeah, this, oh, this is way before Wikipedia. This is five years before Wikipedia, six years. And um, so we had these ideas that we would do this, but we felt like knowledge had to have an authority. So we had actually hired a bunch of people from Worldbook to manage all of our content and make sure that it was authoritative and definitive. Okay. But other people in the, in the group were saying, you know, no, 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 the internet will make its own, it'll make its own rules and we're democratizing information. And sure enough, um, Encarta was destroyed by Wikipedia, which was precisely the thing that we had thought about what we didn't do, which was this idea of creating an encyclopedia that was crowdsourced from the public at large, the democratic voice building its own encyclopedia. And surprise, surprise, it's actually every bit as accurate as the one that we had uh, when we hired experts. All across the length and breadth of information today, it's been democratized. Social media is the radical democratization of information. So uh, Twitter and Facebook literally will repost newspaper. Newspapers have journalistic standards. They have editors. They have people who vet information, decide mm -hmm. what's authoritative and what's not. But Facebook and Twitter doesn't. It's all one level, right? It's all one level. So some reckless son of a bitch in his mom's basement can say Comet Ping Pong is selling children as well as pizza. Uh, and it, it's every bit as authoritative as the Washington Post, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're in the space now. Where, and the reason that you see such a cosmic shift the minute that, tw that Trump doesn't have access to Twitter is because that democratized information is cut off. Right. Right. But the thing about democracy is this. In the original formulation of de democracy, if, if, you look at, if you look at the founding fathers or if you look at Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations, um, the, 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 the pair between democracy is responsibility. Right. So for Adam Smith, capitalism as a system that rewarded greed had to be offset by Christian service or it was destructive force, right? Okay. And for the founding fathers, democracy, the, the ability of everyone to determine the future of the country collectively was only effective if the individuals inside the democracy acted responsibly. You could not have democracy without responsibility. And, and they were literally, the founding fathers, what happened on December 6th was exactly what they were afraid of. If you read the Federalist Papers, this is what they thought a demagogue would do. He would appeal to the, to the public at their basest level and their most instinctual level, a level below their responsibility. And he would, he would use them to effect a coup against the United States the way a king would. They were, they, were, they were frightened. They were terrified of this. And the checks and balances in the government that they set up were designed to offset this. I mean, they were Republicans. When, when conservatives say we, we were founded as a republic, they are correct. They didn't want pure democracy. Pure democracy, as practiced by the Greeks in Sicily, was tyranny. So they didn't want pure democracy. 
They wanted a representative government, a republic, where mm. democracy had to be offset by responsibility. What happened with the democratization of information is it took place without any responsibility. Well, I get, if, can I interrupt you with something just to feed my simple brain? This, this responsibility that you're talking about that was a necessary offset from the get-go seems like it was a big gamble on what was basically an honor system. We're going, to, we're going to proceed forward with decency because we should. You understand what I'm saying? Well, I mean, there was a lot of, for the founding fathers, and it's, it's astonishing because a lot of them were slaveholders. Mm-hmm. Um, for the founding fathers, self-discipline and self-management was responsibility. They were, they were important qualities in terms of individuals. Mm-hmm. And, and again, thinking about my father, thinking about that first, that second world war generation, you think about a guy like George Marshall, or Dwight Eisenhower, Harry Truman, um, a lot of these men and a lot of these women too, um, they, they thought of the necessity of creating character and responsibility in the individual so that the democracy could actually function properly because mm-hmm. it won't work absent that. And what you see at the end of the Trump era is what happens when social media has the internet has democratized information without responsibility. So now at the end of that period, Jack Dorsey kicks Trump off and he says, now maybe I mean, now maybe I better responsibly call the Twitter universe and make sure that toxic concepts don't make their way into the public or YouTube does the same thing or, or um, uh, Facebook does the same thing. They, they did it before they did it. They've been doing it in the Middle East for a long time because you've had the jihadis there and all these social media platforms have been tamping down as best they can the use of social media by jihadis to create violence. Now they recognize they have to do it in this country. You know, what else is really weird is since the um, January 6th thing is how many corporations, corporations have been acting responsibly, right? Like Lowe's kicks um, Josh Hawley out and um, those hotels kicks Josh Tolley out and, and, and all of these, the PGA dumps Trump. And, right. and you, you suddenly have all these corporate entities saying, oh, well, I think it's time for us to take a stand for democracy. They're really late to the game. They're really late to the game. And I don't know how sincere they actually are. But what, what it is is a sudden recognition that these instruments of democracy, which are good things, I'm not saying social media is a bad thing, but if social media has, is it, if it's not exercised responsibly, it fails. It's just like in the days of hardcore, right? Like, I mean, during the Trump period, you would have these hardcore guys like, that's not, Trump, Trump is punk, man. Trump just says what he wants. That's what punk is all about. You can say anything, man. And I'm like, Punk is you can say anything you want, but you have the good sense not to, right? right. <laughs> you know, and and having that responsibility for your actions and your speech becomes the 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 fabric of the democracy. If you don't have that, you don't have the democracy. Well, it's interesting when you're talking about the social networks 
and this this institution of responsibility and a muzzling of of the bizarre and toxic do you think that's monetarily motivated or do you think that's acting in good faith it's you know for jack dorsey it's definitely acting in good faith because it's it's going to cost him a lot of money i'm not saying that that's an impossibility i've got, i've become cynical enough that i always my first question is always okay. Where's the where's well, the, I don't, money? I don't know about where's the money that's making this happen? Zuckerberg is a is a seriously evil son of a bitch. So I don't know. Um, but I mean, for Jack Dorsey, what Twitter Twitter traffic is down twenty percent. The stock yeah. is down thirty five percent. Right? Like wow. this banning Trump is is horrible for him because Twitter was was the whole site was built on outrage. It's had an immediate positive impact on the nation. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because it forces at least a half step towards responsibility. Right. Maybe you shouldn't say the first thing out of your mouth. Right. right. Especially if you're president of the United States. So even if you don't want to accept the idea that Trump is a conspirator and actively was trying to propagate a coup, he shouldn't have said what he says because he was president. He has an mm-hmm. office and a role that carries with it immense responsibility, and he wasn't up to the responsibility. I thought that that, that, that office so far exceeded his capacity as a serious human being. You know, well, he's, not I, a, he's not a serious human being for starters. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. Um, I got a really broad philosophical question for you. It was just birthed in listening to, I mean, if we're banking our hopes for the future on our national character and on a sense of, an innate sense of responsibility and a desire for right, we could be in deep shit. Really broad, non-specific question, but I mean, do you think this is this, this is an empire circling the drain? That this is an exercise in this. That this is a massive example of the of the, the, predictable failure of capitalism, or is this a rough patch? Well, I mean, so Marxist theory is always eschatological, right? It it it, it hijacks a, uh, a religious notion of the perfected universe. You know, when when Lincoln used the term "a more perfect union," um, he was actually uh, alluding to an evangelical concept in American religious history, which was this idea of the perfected human, the human who had come into absolute. Uh, correspondence with the will of God. Mm-hmm. And um, Marxism has at, at part of its uh, intellectual foundation, it has this notion of an end of times after which paradise is achieved. You know, the, the communist state is a paradisical state at the end of capitalism, which goes through this apocalyptic moment, which is just like any relevatory moment in the Bible when empires fall and God returns to earth and establishes peace. Um, I don't think what's happening in the country today has anything to do with these, these concepts because they're just ideas. But what has been true is since world war II, the history of the United States has expressed a kind of a dual character. So on one hand, the possibilities inherent in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, this notion of the equality of human rights, equality of people in terms of opportunity, not in terms of ability, but in terms of opportunity, 
the idea of fairness and decency as a consequence of membership in the community. That notion has actually been expanding since Roosevelt. It's been expanding since World War II. Um, it's a marvelous movement. It's a marvelous trajectory. You know, my mother, growing up in Mobile, Alabama, used to have Black people step off the curb when she would walk past them. So we don't have to do that anymore, right? And, and she, as a woman, had no future except as a housewife when she was growing up in Mobile, Alabama. So um, the roles of women have so expanded. We now have the first female vice president. So part of that American promise since World War II has really expanded, and it's been, a, it's been an, an amazing thing. It's been an amazing thing to see. On the other hand, if you look outside the United States as the acts of the United States as a world actor, it's fomented war, it's fomented destruction. You know, there's the Vietnam War was an absolute calamity, but there's been subsequent wars that were just as malicious in intent and just as ill thought through. Certainly, George Bush is the second world, George Bush the second is the second worst president in American history because he created two wars that didn't need to be fought, right? Okay. At the cost of millions of lives. So, so on one hand, America has been very true to this initial idea of, of equality and the promise of the individual, the promise of, of a collective of individuals that would move progressively towards a better future. And then on the other hand, it's been this odious champion of the most visceral power politics and capitalism that you can imagine. And it's done it overseas. It's done it domestically too. The wealth inequality that exists today is a program. It's a program that's been put in place since the since John Kennedy changed the tax codes in the 1960s. And it's gotten worse and worse and worse. And that program was to maximize the returns for a very small number of people. And the rest of us have to go into a, a situation where we're desperate. Everybody is working today desperately to keep their health care. You cannot, there's no other society in, Amer in the world in the middle of a pandemic where if you get sick, you lose your job and you lose your health care. Right. It's, it's absolutely insane. But that's a program and that program has been put in place and that program is the program of the Republican Party. And, and so you, you have this bifurcation since World War II of the American potential, which Biden was talking about yesterday, mm -hmm. and the American reality in terms of power and wealth. Okay. And we have to reconcile them. I mean, I don't know whether, I don't know whether Biden can do it. Mm -hmm. I suspect not. But, but if they're not reconciled, this one will destroy this one, for sure. And Trump right. almost did it. Okay. Um, my thinking is that your your thoughts will keep inspiring my questions, and you and I could end up doing a series of interviews that last five or six hours apiece. <laughs> I would rather I would rather curb tonight's conversation now and say that you have given me a lot to scratch my skull about. I know I don't even have to ask at this point, but I look forward to that if you'll do it again. I look forward to the next time we do this, Rick. I'd love to do it again, Dan. I always love coming on your show. I love your show, by the way. I've, I've been listening to it a lot. I I, I love the um, the one you did with with uh, uh, Shauna Potter and um, yeah, uh, it, it was great to hear Ian on the, on on your cast. That was awesome. Really enjoyed. Ian it. chewed me out about the quality of my equipment before I hit record, but it it ended up going okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, you know, we know what else was great was that your interview with Jack Kelly was great. And um, so Jack and I had, you know, Jones Vera used to open up for Slackshot all the time, which is the yeah. weirdest. That's the weirdest bill on the planet. That is. Um, but but Steve Ristine and Mark McKay from Slapshot were big Jones Very fans, so they kept asking us to open up for them, and and it was great because Slapshot was the biggest band in Boston when we were doing that. Um, but but Choke and I, I don't know, there was a there was a time when Jack really disliked me, and then I after your after the cast that he was on with you, I I uh, I, I I pinged him on Facebook. I was like, "What's up, Jack Kelly?" And yeah, it's working out. I think I think he's grown a bit, you know. Yeah. Since, since all, the, you know, yeah. Over, over the last stack of decades. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. Thank you so much for the kind words. You know, I'll be bugging you again soon, sir. All right, Dan. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Hey, everyone. This is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media.